Welcome to the New Arab Voice, a podcast hosted by the New Arab, featuring unfiltered voices from the Middle East, North Africa, and beyond. Hello and welcome to the New Arab Voice. It's Friday, the 25th of June, and I'm your host, Gaia Karamatsa, coming to you from London. Here's what we'll be covering today. As was widely expected, hardliner Ibrahim Raisi is well ahead in the vote count after Iran's presidential election. Iran has elected a new president, which has shifted the country's political trajectory. Then, our producer Hugo Goodridge dives deep into the profile of Israel's new prime minister, Naftali Bennett, and what his leadership will mean for Palestine. There was a frustration on my part that I saw in, in younger queer Arabs where all of their references had to do with the West. Finally, we'll continue celebrating Pride Month by speaking to the founder of Taqweer, an online archive trying to reshape narratives surrounding the queer community in the Middle East. This week, Iran's presidential election saw hardline candidate Ibrahim Raisi claim victory, shifting the country's political direction. Local conservative media hailed the victory, announcing that Raisi had secured 62% of the vote. But the election was, as had been expected, mired by an exceptionally low voter turnout. More than half of Iranian voters stayed away after many political heavyweights were barred from running. The 48.8% turnout is the lowest witnessed in a presidential election since the Iranian Revolution in 1979. Supporters of the incoming president were quick to blame the turnout on the economic crisis, the COVID-19 pandemic and the enemy's propaganda, a reference to boycott calls from Iranian opposition groups. With the ascension of Raisi, Iranian officials are expected to take a more hardline approach to foreign relations, while society is expected to lurch into a more conservative state. As Iranians headed to the polls, talks aimed at restarting the Iran nuclear deal continued in Vienna, with negotiators offering cautiously optimistic assessments. We have made progress this week in these six rounds. We are closer to a deal. But we are not still there. We are closer than we were one week ago, but we are not still there. We have made progress on a number of technical issues. Following the announcement of Raisi's electoral win, many regional leaders were quick to congratulate the incoming leader. Russia, Turkey, Syria, Iraq and a handful of Gulf nations sent warm words, while the US, predictably, took a much firmer stance to the news. Changed on that front. Uh, I will say that the president's view and our view is that uh, the decision maker here is the supreme leader. Uh, that was the case before the election, is the case today, will be the case probably moving forward. You can find complete coverage about the Iranian election on the New Arabs website. And for more analysis about what Raisi's electoral victory means for Iran and how a conservative leadership will affect the country, you can listen to our in-depth analysis from our previous episode. The 
אוטובוס, 14 ביוני 21 בשעה 16. ישיבה זו נעולה. תודה. It took them four elections over two years, but Israel finally managed to pick itself a new prime minister. Benjamin Netanyahu is out after 12 years, and his successor, Naftali Bennett, has taken the top spot. But who is Naftali Bennett? Where does he come from? And how will Israel be shaped by this new leader? Born in 1972 to Jewish-American parents who emigrated from San Francisco to Israel, Bennett grew up between Israel, the U.S. and Canada. Following an education in Haifa, he joined the Israeli army in 1990. He served in uh, elite units uh, in the Israeli army. He volunteered for that at, at 18, Sayeret Matkal, which is kind of the elite uh, reconnaissance unit. This is David Daoud a non-resident fellow at the Atlantic Council and co-founder of the Resistance Axis Monitor. Um, afterwards, you know, he had a choice to continue in that unit or move on to kind of get a command position in, a, in, in Maglan, which is also an elite com, uh, command or combat unit, but not as much as Sayyid Matkal. He chose to go into, uh, you know, into the command position. There's a lot of patriotism drive in his background. Following his military service, he completed a law degree at the Hebrew University in Jerusalem, before then returning to the U.S., where he founded a highly profitable banking security company called Sayota. Um, went back to fight in the Second Lebanon War, and the way he tells it, that's what spurred him to enter into politics. You know, the, what he saw as the political uh, mismanagement of the war, the upper echelon of the IDF particularly. One of Bennett's first jobs in politics was working as the chief of staff for Benjamin Netanyahu, who at the time was an opposition leader in the Israeli Knesset. In 2011, with fellow right-wing politician Ayelet Shaked, he founded the My Israel Party, a fiercely right-wing movement. It sought to promote Zionist activities and arranged protests and demonstrations against anything they viewed as being anti-Zionist. He then went on to lead the Jewish Home Party, another religious Zionist, nationalist, pro-settler, right-wing political party. In 2013, Bennett entered the Knesset and in the subsequent years went on to hold a number of positions in the cabinet, including Minister of Economy, Religious Services, Diaspora Affairs and Education. Earlier this year and after much wrangling, it was announced that Bennett had been chosen to serve as Israel's 13th Prime Minister, leading a fragile coalition with almost every colour from the political spectrum in Israel. Bennett was chosen to serve as Prime Minister after agreeing to back centrist Yair Lapid's coalition in accordance with the deal struck between the two men. For the next two years, Bennett will hold office before handing the keys over to Lapid. So now that he's in the top spot, does Israel have a religious Zionist, nationalist, pro-settler, right-wing prime minister? David Dawood again. I think, you know, look, he spent, he's, he's a political novice, especially compared to someone like Netanyahu. You know, he, I think he's, he's getting his footing, um, as he's had experience, say, in the education ministry, the defense ministry. What I've seen is, is a changing Bennett someone who I guess has, he admits this, he had an interview with Lucia Harish in 2018, where he says like, yes, of course I have ego, but it's what you do with the ego. 
you know, at the same moment, he says, like, you know, I've learned things over the course of these past eight years in politics, um, including that, you know, ideological uh, opponents, if you will, aren't enemies, that they're not evil simply because they have uh, different opinions, that they believe what they do as strongly as he believes what he does. It's not a reason to think someone is malevolent or, or malicious. And I think that shows kind of a political maturity that even Netanyahu um, didn't exhibit. Hopefully it holds its prime minister. You know, there's Bennett, the sloganeering politician, and perhaps a man who might have become more complex in his thinking as now he's being tasked with the responsibility of running a, a very complicated country like Israel. Throughout his political career, Bennett has shown himself to be an ideologue, firm in his views, unwavering in his compromise, and resolute in his belief. But with the fragile nature of the coalition he finds himself leading a coalition that could collapse with the smallest rupture, throwing Israel back into political chaos, Bennett could have to implement a gentler approach if he wants to keep the office he's been put into. He's the weakest prime minister in Israel's history. Right? He's only chairing a party of seven, but one of whom already defected. Uh, Amichai Shikli already said, you know, we're not voting for the government. Out of a coalition of eight ideologically diverse parties, and the coalition, unlike, you know, the, the coalition between Shimon Peres and Yitzhak Shamir, I think it was like something over close to 90 Knesset seats between them. This is a party that barely mustered 60 votes to support it. Right? So it's a much more fragile coalition, very ideologically diverse cabinet of a prime minister who has a very small party. So he's going to have to play a very different game than Netanyahu. And those fervent ideologies that he spent much of his political career trumpeting they too might have to be pushed back in favour of a more politically peacemaking and pragmatic approach. You know, if any of these parties are coming in with kind of ideological planks, right, and each party has its own ideological planks, the thing it wants to see done, I think they're going to have to leave those at the door or not expect support from the entirety of the government. So, but I think when those ideological matters come up, they're going to be tempered in some way to make sure that as long as the priority remains to keep the government together, then those ideological matters are going to be uh, set to the side, or at least you know, leeway is going to be given to whatever party to kind of stay out of the vote or not be forced to vote the way the government, uh, you know, the majority yeah. of the government's going to vote. So if Bennett's government isn't on an ideological crusade, then what can Israel expect when it comes to legislation? You know, he's been trying to stress the commonalities. He's been trying to act with respect towards his uh, his coalition members. If that holds, then I think we can see productivity on the issues. And this is something that you know all the coalition members have said that they're going to try to work on the commonalities, right? And I guess you can kind of consider it maybe a technocratically focused government where you know they're going to focus on education, security, transportation, infrastructure, things that we're all passing a budget. Right. That's going to be the big challenge for the government. It's very early days in the Bennett government, but the temperature of Israeli politics suggests that pragmatism and compromise will be favoured ahead of ideology and bullishness, if not out of choice, then out of necessity. And while living may improve for Israelis, for the Palestinians and Palestinian rights, it's very unlikely that Naftali Bennett will be the man to give them what they are if owed. If we were to form a Palestinian state according to these 130 countries and place a radical Islamic state just 10 minutes from my house, I would put my children at a harm's way. 
Doesn't that, have to be a radical Islamic not state, gonna happen. does it? Well, Doesn't it does. have to be. Uh, in, in La La Land, it's not. In reality, it is. Because we're not history. In you know, the, the Palestinian people who came about roughly 100 years ago as a reaction to Zionism. If you look at history, there was never yeah. a Palestinian people. Uh, you want to uh, say that our land does not belong to us, I, I suggest you go change the Bible first, come back and then show me a new Bible that says that the land of Israel doesn't belong to Jews. Palestinians, these Bedouin uh, folks, are, are being held hostage by the uh, Palestinian Authority and by the EU. It's all about uh, poking uh, Israel in the eye politically, and we're not going to, um, you know, respond to that. Rhetoric like this from Bennett has now quickly been put into action since he has taken office. His government allowed right-wing settlers to march to the Damascus Gate in East Jerusalem, allowed Israeli police on horseback to beat Palestinian youths, in addition to ordering fresh strikes on the besieged Gaza Strip, which is already fighting for its survival. Raju Surani is the director of the Palestinian Centre for Human Rights based in Gaza and has spent over 40 years as a human rights lawyer representing hundreds of victims in 189 cases submitted to the International Criminal Court. Raji understands violence and oppression and has experienced it firsthand. On six occasions, he has been imprisoned by either Israel or the Palestinian Authority. During a three-year sentence in a Gaza prison, he was also a victim of torture. And with Bennett taking the reins of power in Israel, he is not anticipating a happy outcome for Palestinians. I think we have one of the most righteous uh, Israeli governments. I have no illusion about it, and I would anticipate and expect, I mean, more violations, more war crimes, more suffocation socially, economically, uh, more suppression, oppression, more persecution for the Palestinian people, uh, much, much more of Judaization of Jerusalem. Uh, and much more ethnic cleansing for Jerusalem, much more settlements, activities, uh, expansion, vertically, horizontally, uh, bypass roads. I think we are heading for a very, very unprecedented era. Uh, This government is flagging a clear-cut way. Almost Palestinians don't exist. And that's how they deal and how they behave. And uh, the initial examples can be viewed even with their own citizens inside the green line, the Palestinian, and how they acted and reacted against them. And particularly for Gaza, where an Israeli blockade continues to strangle the people. The last one and a half months is the worst since the blockade ever began. Every crossing in Gaza is a block. Uh, Nothing coming in or getting out. This week, one month after a truce halted a deadly 11-day Israeli offensive on the Strip, Israel has finally allowed a very limited resumption of commercial exports from the Gaza Strip. Israel's defence ministry said on Monday that the measure was approved by Prime Minister Neftali Bennett's government and was conditional upon the preservation of security stability. However, other restrictions by Israel remain in place and are taking a toll on different sectors in Gaza. 
a Pepsi bottling plant said it was forced to close and lay off around 250 workers because it was no longer receiving the raw materials needed to stay in business because of the blockade. These restrictions also include the limiting of medical patients who can get treatment in Israel or the occupied West Bank. Raji says the Bennett government line is nothing new to the blockade Gaza has been under since 2007. Uh, They didn't conclude 14 years of criminal illegal uh, siege affected 2.2 million people and this resulted 65%. Uh, of the Gaza population unemployed or unpaid 90% under poverty line and there is 85% of the population depends on UNRWA and international agencies rations so so they they, 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 as they said 14 years ago they want to send Gaza to the stone ages and effectively I mean they, they suffocated Gaza socially so this government Uh, obvious uh, and uh, clear uh, and the policy they are taking they have much much harsher even uh, measures against uh, Russian civilians in Gaza. Going forward it is unlikely that Bennett's term will see much engagement with Palestinian leadership however after years of human rights work Raji still believes that having optimism is key. All what we want, simple. As representatives, we want protection, we want dignity, and we want justice, which is not too much, I think, I mean, to ask. Uh, All what we want, I mean, politically, end of criminal belligerent occupation. Uh, Otherwise, this will continue, because nobody in history talked about just fair or right occupation. So as far as there is an occupation, these crimes will continue. Uh, But that doesn't stop us from having strategic optimism, not losing the hope, invest our best to bring justice and dignity, to try to remind everybody in this globe that ICC, universal jurisdiction, international law, international material law, it's not Palestinian invention. This is the creme de la creme of the human experience. And these are values we are sharing the whole world with. Nobody can take the hope from our heart. I remember going to Acid, which was a like a legendary gay club just on the outskirts of Beirut in the mid noughties like when I was still a teenager. Um, and I remember like I'd be outside uh, in the smoking area and it's a whole mix of people. And um, I remember there was this drag queen just throwing shade, basically. Marwan Kabur is the founder of Takwir, an online social media archive collecting and documenting stories of the LGBTQIA plus community in the Middle East. Uh, throwing shade in Arabic is ambishkur. So tushkur uh, for someone, it's, it's to kind of to make the snorting sound like <laughs> So it, it's, it's the kind of this, this way where like, if, if you want to throw shade at someone, tushkurlu. Uh, you know, like taunt, which is basically a French word to means auntie. Uh, we, we'd, we'd use it to refer to uh, a queer 
or a homosexual man of a feminist mannerisms, so she's, she's like this grand dame. The name of the project comes from a multitude of inspirations that exemplify Marwan's mission. Takwir is the word for a surah, or a chapter, of the Quran, about the Day of Judgment. It's also the Arabic word which means to create in a form of a sphere. And in a mixture of Arabic and English, it fuses to mean to make queer. If you look at the TV shows from Egypt, from any time in history, if you look at our pop stars, our music videos, if you look at our, you know, the, the, the furniture in our living rooms, more is more is more. We, we love gold, uh, ornate fabrics. Uh, we love patterns on patterns on patterns. Our pop stars have big hair, big makeup, big plastic surgery. And our music is over the top. We, we're, I mean, also like... Whenever I'm saying this, we always have to remember that the Arab world or the Middle East is is the mixture of so many different cultures. And I think that aesthetic, which is so camp, uh, is part of our very culture. Most of our mainstream pop stars look like drag queens. Our our you know our the way we dance is very camp. The way we move is quite effeminate. And I think that that is a reason for all of us to celebrate. For some, it may just seem like a social media account. But Marwan's initiative aims to reshape the way people perceive the heritage of the LGBTQIA plus community from the Middle East and beyond. The posts, uh, I feel, could be divided into maybe three categories. The first one is uh, things from history, historical posts, where I really like delve into I just go through a lot of text material and books and journals and and articles to kind of excavate basically information that I feel belongs in in queer history because a lot of these stories, they're not being presented to us as queer. They're just like, yes, such and such caliph had uh, sexual relations with eunuchs and men and, and that's it. But what I'm saying is, Okay, let, let's take that bit of information and kind of think of it as queer history. So the second part is looking at Arabic popular culture, um, whether it's noticing a queer narrative presenting itself in a, in a music video or one character in a TV series that, even though no one says is queer, is very obviously and flamboyantly queer. And then the last uh, or the third category let's say is things that are not queer you know they're, they're not there's nothing about this let's say um I'm, i can pinpoint the my hariri uh, my hariri is a lebanese pop star and there's an infamous uh, interview she did on pakistani television that went viral and has gone down in history there's nothing queer about it but for some reason queer people connect with that material and it, it, we kind of claimed it as part of our uh, pop culture Instagram works quite well because Marwan's aim is to target young people who may not know of this vast period of history and who may only link their queer heritage to a Western context. There was a frustration on my part that I saw in in younger queer Arabs where all of their references had to do with the West. You know, like they knew... Uh, all the vocabulary from RuPaul's Drag Race, but they, they didn't really know any of the drag vocabulary from the Arab world. And I was like, 
these are the stories that are very, it's so easy for them to get erased or forgotten because they were never documented. They're only passed either by lived experience or from oral histories. So I really wanted to start uh, this space to, to document in a formal way um, all of these instances. Tackling the narrative around a diverse group of people throughout vast periods of history is never easy. Marwan himself was caught between the problematic discourse emerging from both the Middle East and the West. So with Taqweer, he wanted to stay away from either of these problematic narratives. It was post-Civil War Lebanon, it was post-the Cold War, and it was with the rise of conservatism across the Arabic world uh, from both sides, like the conservatism that, that's rising from post-Iranian uh, revolution in Iran, as well as the conservatism of, of the Gulf regions, let's say. And so we had an overwhelming conservative environment that we grew up in, one that told us that we were always like that. We were not liberal, we were not progressive, that gay people and women always were subjected to a lot of prejudice. And then from the other side, you have the Western world telling us, you Arabs, you're backwards, you're homophobic, you're sexist, you're misogynistic, um, and we are the beacon of progressive ideals. So someone my age grew up with the idea that in order for me to achieve my queer liberation, I need to align myself with the West. And as I got older, this idea started to crumble I, because I could see how problematic the, the way the West presents itself is because it centers the white experience uh, rather than one that can uh, include people like myself. At the same time, I was discovering a lot about Arab, Arab history and popular culture, whether from the Islamic empire or pre-Islam or just from you know more contemporary times in the 80s and the 90s where I'm like, this strikes me as oddly progressive. I don't, say, I don't see why people told us we were always like this. This is not to say that at the moment, as we stand, that there's a lot of problems with homophobia, sexism, transphobia in the Arab world. But what I'm trying to say, things were not always like this. Things don't have to be like this. And what I'm trying to do with Tequir is to try to explore those histories to say there's an alternative reality that, we can, that is not just possible it is attainable and it's to give to a sense of community to say that our existence here is not just about the struggle right now it is one connected with a lot of queer people from across the arabic uh, speaking world we, that give us a sense of past and then uh, what i'm trying to i mean in a very kind of utopian way say this gives us hope into a queer history or a queer utopia for the future such online spaces provide a safe haven for a lot of queer individuals across the world, especially during Pride Month under lockdown. As, as most people know, it's, it's very challenging to be visibly queer uh, within uh, the Arab world in varying degrees, but, but generally very challenging. Um, what social media allows for us is a space to be visible without having to go through the scrutiny of society or the state or the authorities and so on. Um, so even though we're not marching down the streets waving flags, we are organizing and we are sharing information and we are building solidarity bridges. And just the work that I'm doing with Tequir, there's a lot of other uh, practitioners who are creating their own 
uh, ways to tell uh, queer stories and to document and archive queer history. Um, and I think existing in that digital space to a degree is extremely liberating. And perhaps our pride is the one that exists on, you know, on, on Instagram and TikTok right now. Um, it, it, it serves in a, it manifests itself in a different way than the one that we're used to. So I wouldn't say we don't have pride in the Arab world. We just have it in slightly different tools. To Queer has garnered such a positive response that it will soon be turned into a published glossary of words used by the LGBTQIA community across the Middle East and North Africa, allowing Marwan to significantly expand his work of reframing history. Thank you for listening to The New Arab Voice. This episode was produced by myself, Hugo Goodridge and Nick McAlpin. Stay tuned for the next episode of The New Arab Voice, which will come out in two weeks' time. In the meantime, you can find all our previous episodes on all major podcast platforms. Don't forget to follow The New Arab on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram for the latest news from the Middle East, North Africa and beyond.